spot, I threw myself into the fight. The Fighting Irish I kicked shins, I elbowed stomachs, I punched noses and ears. I stood over a little three cheeses tall Fritz where he lay on the ground, protecting him like an anti-aircraft gun during an air raid. I was the only one who came to his defense. But I was enough. I was a right whirling dervish, a one-man army Hitler would have given his little mustache to bottle up and ship to the Eastern Front. Don't get me wrong, those Aryans gave me a busted lip and bruises that would send Da into a tizzy that night. But at last, we reached an uneasy truce there in the street with the bonfire crackling behind us. Nobody wanted to come close enough for me to scrape my knuckles on their faces, and I wasn't moving from the spot. He fuzzed burning books. I saw him, I said, fists clenched, breathing hard. He was just taking his time about it, weren't you? I asked Fritz. He still lay on the ground, his arms covering his head. Weren't you? I yelled, urgent. If he didn't help me out here, we were both done for. Yes, he said at last. Of course. Horst stepped in between us and the other boys. All right, enough. We can't hurt our Irish guest too badly, boys. Haven't you heard? His daddy is an ambassador. If you break his nose, the Irish might declare war on us. He pretended to be frightened by holding his hands against his chest and quivering, which got a laugh from the rest of the boys. Ireland was as much a threat to Nazi Germany as a summer rain, and all of us knew it. Horst just loved rubbing it in. I hated him all the more for it. But the joke had broken the bloodlust of the boys, and for that, I was grateful. I lowered my fists and nodded my thanks to Horst. Horst thanked me by cracking a fist across my face and sending me to the ground next to Fritz. Compassion is a weakness, Horst said for the benefit of me and anyone else in our squad who might not like bullies picking on little kids. All life is struggle. He added, spouting more lines from the leadership guides the Nazi party sent him each week. He who wants to live should fight for himself. He who doesn't want to fight in this world of eternal struggle doesn't deserve to live. That part was meant for Fritz. Horst gave him a swift kick to the small of his back to punctuate the lesson, making Fritz writhe. I glared at Horst wondering what made him such an arse. Maybe Horst really believed all that might makes right malarkey. Maybe he didn't like an Irish boy showing up the German master race. Or maybe he was just a bleeding maggot. My money was on the latter. I rose up on an elbow, my Irish blood thundering war drums in my ears, ready to knock Horst's donkey teeth down his throat. How to take a beating. I wanted nothing more than to pound Horst into a German pancake. But while the Nazis would give you a medal for punching and kicking your comrades, they'd sack you for attacking a superior officer. And like it or not, that's what Horst was to me in the Hitler Youth. And I wanted to stay in the Hitler Youth. Needed to stick around as a spy. So I swallowed my bile. Horst grinned. It was as though he could see me doing the math of our relationship, could read my powerlessness to fight back. Horst gave Fritz another kick just because he knew I hated it and couldn't stop him. Above all else, a boy must learn to be beaten, Horst said, quoting Nazi scripture again. There is no place in Germany for peaceful thinkers and physical degenerates. I vowed right then and there that one day I was going to teach Horst how to take a beating. But not today. Today I swallowed my rage and helped Fritz to his feet, hoping I hadn't called too much attention to myself. And you, Horst said. He poked Fritz in the chest, hard, but his voice was soft. Someday, when you truly believe in that uniform you're wearing, you won't hesitate. You'll burn books 
You'll turn in your parents. You'll give your life for Germany. And on that day, you'll finally understand the freedom, the joy that comes with giving yourself completely to the Führer. A government truck rattled up on the cobblestone street, and two older Hitler youth boys jumped out of the passenger door before it had even come to a stop. The two boys wore a special insignia that marked them as the SRD, the Hitler Youth's patrol force. The SRD were like junior secret police officers, the Hitler Youth equivalent of the Gestapo, and just as scary. Like the special Hitler Youth Army, Navy, and Marine divisions, the SRD was one of the groups you could apply for after you graduated from the Jungfolk. Most SRD went on to become secret police. Horst snapped to attention, and so did the rest of us. Jungfolk, one of the SRD boys said. You are needed at once. A British plane has been shot down just outside Berlin. A parachute was spotted, but no pilot has been recovered. Your help is needed to search the countryside. You are to board the truck immediately. A British pilot on the run in the countryside right outside the city? Fear for his capture made my heart hammer in my chest. But that had to be nothing compared to the real terror he must be feeling right now. If he was caught, he'd be tortured and killed. How long could he hide out from the SS patrols? And if he did elude them, how would he avoid a dozen or more Hitler youth crawling through the woods and fields to look for him? The boys in my troop were already clamoring for the truck, thrilled to have real work to do for the fatherland. So much for the rest of the school day. The Hitler youth had won out over academics yet again. I glanced back down the street, trying to figure out what to do. I had to get word to my parents. They had helped Allied soldiers and spies get out of Berlin before. But the truck was turning around. Boys were filling the benches in back. Michael, come on, Fritz called from the truck. I took Fritz's outstretched hand and climbed into the truck just as it rumbled off, leaving behind the bonfire of books. There wasn't time to get word to my parents. I was just going to have to save the British pilot myself. In case you forgot. The truck bumped over a bridge on the way out of Berlin, and Fritz rocked into me. I pushed him away with my shoulder. I had already stuck my neck out too far for this kid. I didn't need everybody thinking we were friends. Thanks for helping me, Fritz said. I didn't help you at all, I said. Horst says all of us have to learn to take a beating, so I guess I interrupted the lesson. I already know how to take a beating, Fritz said. I glanced at his bruises and his cut lip, and I figured he was right. What I need to learn to do is to fight back, like you, Fritz said. Especially if I'm going to join the SRD and be in the SS one day. I was stunned. This little guy wanted to be in the SS? And here I thought he hadn't thrown those books into the fire because he was maybe a halfway sane person. Everybody called the SS the Death's Head Squad because of the skull and crossbones on their caps. They wore all black, and they ran the concentration camps and were the people who sent you there. Fritz was crazy if he wanted to join the SS. But then, most German kids were crazy. It was hardly their fault. The Nazis had taken over Germany when they were all just toddlers. Fritz didn't remember any kind of life before Hitler. I had at least had seven years of sanity in Dublin and London before coming to this nutty place. I was the only one who could see how two-faced everything was. So you're English? Fritz asked. I bristled at the insult. No, not English. Irish. I hate the English, I told him. What's the difference? Fritz asked. Well, for one, the Irish are neutral. I said over the grinding of the truck's gears. Like Spain, or Sweden, or Switzerland. They're not at war with Germany. People tended to forget that Ireland wasn't part of the United Kingdom anymore, or that we'd only been a part of it in the first place because England had conquered us. 
For centuries, the English had done all they could to take our land, quash our language, and put us in chains. And it took a bloody war for independence to set us free of them. There were plenty of other ways the Irish were different from the English, chief among them that we weren't a bleeding pox upon the face of the planet. But I didn't want to get into all that with Fritz. I didn't want to be talking to him at all. I had a job to do. I had to get my head back in the game. This was my first chance to do real spy work on my own. Fritz seemed to take the hint, and we rode in silence for the rest of the drive. The truck pulled to a stop along a dirt road half an hour outside the city. All around us was farmland, and down a narrow lane sat a farmhouse, barn, and a few small work buildings and sheds. Perfect and perfectly obvious places for someone to hide. Off in a field full of haystacks to the west, under the watchful protection of three milk cows, was a flat, wrinkly, gray thing that must have been the pilot's parachute. You could feel the boy's excitement in the air like the crackle of electric wires in a fog. Everybody wanted to be the one who found the British airmen, but nobody more so than me. We spilled out of the truck and hurriedly formed into rows under the direction of the SRD. SRD looked different from regular Hitler youth. Their uniforms were dark blue with special yellow bands on the cuffs that said patrol force. And when they were on special duty, like they were now, they wore shiny silver gorgets. Gorgets are metal plates that hang down on your chest from a heavy chain around your neck, like a huge gaudy necklace. Theirs were shaped like six-inch-long kidney beans, with patrol force written on a banner underneath the double lightning bolt insignia of the SS, in case you forgot. The gorgets would have been really silly if they hadn't been worn by the scariest kids in Nazi Germany. The SRD's mission was to watch all the other German kids and turn them in for doing anything illegal. I hated these guys. They ratted out kids for not saluting properly, for violating the nightly curfew, listening to foreign radio broadcasts, sneaking into movies for adults, singing songs they weren't supposed to sing, and dancing to music they weren't supposed to listen to, all of which could get you sent to a concentration camp. The SRD joined the SS on raids, spied on their neighbors, and monitored church services for anti-Nazi sermons. But their favorite job was the one they were getting to do right now, hunting for Allied airmen shot down over Germany. Two adult SS officers stepped up to speak to us once the SRD had us in line. Scarier than the SRD, scarier than anything else in Nazi Germany, which was plenty scary enough, were the SS, the death's head troops. When people did the German look to see if anyone was listening, it was the SS they were most afraid they would see over their shoulders. The airman is still at large, one of the SS told us and my heart fluttered with hope. One group will search to the east, beginning with the farm and moving up into the foothills. The other will search to the west, inspecting the haystacks in the fields before moving into the woods. The pilot will be found. Fan out, cover every centimeter of ground. Leave no place unsearched. Go. I was on the team assigned to the farm, and I sprinted toward it faster than anybody. If I didn't find the British pilot first, he was a dead man. A pilot in a haystack. I started with the barn. It's where I would have hidden if I'd been on the run. The barn had the itchy smell of stacked hay and cow poops, and was filled with both. I watched my step as I searched for the airman. Fritz followed me inside, and I sagged. I needed to be alone in case I found the pilot. I couldn't have Fritz or anybody else raising the alarm. I had to lose the kid. Fritz pulled a pitchfork from a wall of farm tools, and before I could think how to stop him, he jabbed the pointy end into the nearest pile of hay. I flinched, waiting for a cry of pain from the hiding pilot, but nothing came. Fritz pulled the pitchfork out and attacked another spot, and another. Jab, jab, jab. 
I closed my eyes and flinched every time. I couldn't stand there and watch, and jabbing at the haystacks was exactly the kind of thing that could keep Fritz busy while I searched the rest of the barn. I just hoped the pilot was somewhere else. A rickety old ladder led up to a loft where more hay was stored, an even better hiding place than the haystacks Fritz was poking. But that meant going up. I held the rung in front of me and closed my eyes. You can do this, I told myself. You have to do this. If that pilot's up there, you have to be the first one to find him. I put a foot on the bottom rung of the ladder, eyes still closed, and my breath came short and quick. I could already feel the familiar tightening in my chest, the sick churning in the pit of my stomach, the dizzy wobbling of my head. It's not that far. It's not that far. It's not that far. I hoisted myself up a rung, and another, and another. I kept my eyes closed the whole time, groping blindly at the rough wood of the hayloft floor when I got to the top. I pulled myself over the edge on my belly, hugging the floor like a toddler clinging to his mother's leg. I was panting now, panicking, and it took me several long seconds to calm down enough to even open my eyes. As long as I forgot where I was now and didn't look back over the edge, I hoped I'd be okay. I pulled myself to my feet with effort, glad no one had been there to see my pathetic little display. My legs were still wobbly. There was no fooling myself that I was on solid ground, especially up here in this open space, but I wasn't paralyzed with fear the way I got sometimes. It helped to have something else to worry about, and right now... That was finding the missing pilot. I couldn't risk a German look over my shoulder to see if anyone was listening, but I was pretty sure I was alone in this part of the barn. Hello? I whispered in English. Are you up here? I'm not German. I'm Irish. I'm here to help. I waited. Nothing. That didn't mean he wasn't here. He might be here and not believe me. I'm not sure I believe me. What were the chances of an Irish kid finding you in a hayloft in the middle of Germany? The hay in the loft didn't look like it had been disturbed since it was stacked up here, but I dug into it anyway, kicking up all kinds of little tickly bits in the air. I sneezed again and again. I couldn't stop sneezing. I was sure I had bits of hay permanently lodged in my nose. I was also pretty sure the pilot wasn't up here, which meant I'd gone through all that for nothing. And now, I had to get back down. I backed warily toward the ladder. I didn't want to look down until I had to, if at all. Hey, what are you doing? Fritz asked. I turned, startled, and saw Fritz at the top of the ladder. And the ground ten feet below me. My head became a helium balloon. The ground floor of the barn dropped away from me as if I were watching an elevator car plummet down an elevator shaft. The world spun. My body seized up, and I fell over the side. Acrophobia Fritz grabbed my shirt. I swung out over the edge, about to drop, but I couldn't move. I was paralyzed, frozen with fear. Michael! Michael, come on! What are you doing? Michael! Fritz grabbed my arm, then my body. My weight almost took us both over the side, but Fritz was able to wrestle me back from the edge. We collapsed together on the floor of the hayloft. The familiar, sick and dizzy feeling of vertigo slowly left me as we lay on our backs, panting and exhausted. What happened? Fritz asked. I'm afraid of heights. I said between breaths. Since when? Since before I can remember. Fritz propped himself up on his elbows to look down at me. You froze up. You almost fell over the side. You would have broken your neck. I closed my eyes, trying not to think about it, and failing miserably. Thank you for catching me. Fritz stood and offered his hand to help me up. I took it. Don't worry, he said. I won't tell anybody. 
It was weird for Fritz to stand there so solemnly and say he wouldn't tell anybody about it. I was embarrassed, sure. Other people climbed up and down ladders and looked out windows all the time without becoming statues and falling over. Why couldn't I? I should just be able to get over it. But it wasn't as if my fear was some horrible secret. Then I realized, in Nazi Germany, every weakness was punished. It was why Fritz was picked on, and why I would be too if the other boys knew about my phobia. They'd forever be hauling me up onto rooftops and forcing me to look over the side. Because that's what Nazi Germany was. The bully who found your most painful wound and poked at it with a stick. I nodded and shook Fritz's hand. In the heart of enemy territory, without even wanting to, I'd found a friend. But I still hadn't found the missing pilot. In which I am a bleeding genius. Fritz and I announced the barn cleared and continued our search. We were hunting in a hedgerow of shrubs that separated the barn from a cow pasture when I saw it. A spot of blood, dark red and still wet, and another, and another, leading along the hedgerow to the east up toward the foothills in the distance. And there, a boot print. The airman. He must have been injured in the fall, limped over here, and skirted the hedgerow on his way to higher ground. I quickly kicked dirt over the blood spots as I tried to think what to do. I had to throw the other searchers off the scent, send them hunting in the wrong direction. Then I would double back and find the airman myself. I went back down the hedgerow, away from where the blood trail began, and snapped a branch here, a twig there, as though the pilot had run west toward the haystacks and the forest, not east toward the mountains. A broken branch! I called out, loud enough for the other boys to hear me. Fritz was the first one there. He's right. Someone's been this way, and recently. An SS officer blew a whistle, and everyone converged on the spot. I ran down the hedgerow, leading the searchers farther and farther away from the blood, secretly snapping a couple of branches along the way. I left those for others to find. I was feeling pretty good about my brilliant plan to lure the army of hunters in the wrong direction when I stopped to snap another branch and noticed a hint of blue among the mass of brown leaves in the hedge. I parted the branches and my heart caught in my throat. Lying on the ground, just inside the hedge, right where I'd been leading the entire Nazi search party, was the missing British pilot. An angry badger. I let the hedgerow branches snap back shut and muttered a short, harsh German word I wasn't supposed to know or say. The British pilot wasn't headed for the hills. He was right here. And I'd led the Nazis right to him. The quick glimpse I'd gotten of him told me he wasn't doing too well either. He was curled up in a ball as if he was hurt, and he hadn't looked up at me. Just stay quiet and still, I told him. I'm not German. I'm Irish. I'm here to help you. Then I realized I'd said all that in German, which probably hadn't helped. The searchers from the Hitler Youth were getting closer, beating at the hedgerow with rakes and poking into it with sticks. I switched to English and told him the same thing again. My name's Michael O'Shaughnessy, I added. Well came a weak but distinctly English voice from below me. You can't get much more Irish than that. Are you hurt? I asked him. Not at all, he said, even though he was gritting his teeth in agony. Unless you mean this bloody gash on my arm or my sprained ankle. A sprained ankle? No wonder he hadn't made it far. An SS officer joined the vanguard of Hitler youth beating at the bushes. He'd be on the pilot in moments. I had to think of something. Do something. Do you trust me? I asked the airman, pretending to search the hedgerow. Trust an Irishman? The pilot said. I'd sooner trust a fox in a henhouse. 
and I'd sooner carry an angry badger across the river Liffey than help an Englishman, I told him. Now I know you're Irish. I'm entirely in your hands. That was a scary thought. I waved Fritz over, hoping he wouldn't see the blue of the pilot's uniform through the brown leaves as I had. Come on, I told him, hurrying back the way we'd come. I think the pilot may have doubled back on us. But the trail goes this way, Fritz said. Misdirection, I told him. And suddenly I realized that's exactly what the drops of blood had been. The pilot had limped as far as the barn, making it look like he was headed for the hills, then doubled back and hidden in the hedgerow. Why would he stay here as a farm? He's had more than an hour to run. He had to head for the hills, I told Fritz. Let's look for tracks here. I led him right to where I'd found the blood, hoping he'd see it. I didn't want to be the one to cry wolf twice. But of course, I'd swept dirt over the blood spots I'd seen, trying to hide them. Idiot. While Fritz was searching the ground, I snapped a twig off the hedgerow and dragged it across my palm, breaking the skin and bringing blood to the surface. It stung, but that didn't matter. I didn't have long before the searchers found the pilot. I stepped ahead of Fritz and bent down as though searching, squeezing a drop of blood from my clenched fist onto the cold, dry earth. I moved away, squeezing another and another. Come on, Fritz, I thought. See the blood? See the blood? I watched the SS officer get closer to the place where the airman was hiding. Closer. Closer. I was going to have to say something myself. Look! Blood! Fritz cried. Hey! Hey, I found blood! He called to the searchers. A trail of it! Hitler youth boys abandoned their search of the hedgerow and came running. The SS officer stopped right beside where the British pilot was hiding, turned, and then walked back toward us. I heaved a huge sigh of relief. I'd saved the airman, but only for the moment. There's more blood here, a boy cried, finding some in the grass beyond the barn. Blood I hadn't shed. The pilot must have left a longer trail than even I'd seen. He's headed for the mountains. The SS officer said, as though he'd always known. He blew his whistle, calling the searchers in the field across the road to join us. Fan out, he told us. Form a line. Work your way into the foothills. Find him. Fritz joined the growing line of boys and bounded off with them up the hill. I stayed behind, slipping back into the barn while all the other boys from the field joined the search. It felt bad to lie to Fritz, to not tell him the truth about the airman, but I didn't know how much I could trust him yet. I remembered him saying he wanted to join the SRD, the glee he'd shown sticking that pitchfork into the hay in the barn. Was that just the excitement of the chase, or did he really believe all that Nazi claptrap about the master race? I still had to get the British pilot out of the hedgerow to somewhere safer, but where? I watched the searchers through the gaps in the barn wall until they were over the hill. The hay made me sneeze again, and then I had it. I knew where to hide the airmen. The Befriending Barn The British pilot was tall, broad-shouldered, and pale, but that last part might just have been because he had a sprained ankle and had lost a lot of blood. He was heavy, too, heavier than I expected. He leaned on me for support as I led him away from the hedge. I didn't know how much of a false blood trail he'd left, or how long we had until the searchers would come running back over that hill, so I picked up the pace. The airman grunted. The three-legged race never was my favorite event at the village fair. Do you always joke around when your life is in danger? I asked him as we limped into the barn. No better time, he said. He stopped. This is your idea? Hide me in the barn? I didn't hide here in the first place because it's the most obvious place to look. I didn't tell him it was the first place I'd looked for him, but I did tell him it was the last. That's why it's the perfect place now, I said. What better place to hide than someplace that's already been searched and cleared? A slow grin spread across the pilot's face. 
Very clever. Are you sure you're Irish? You seem like a nice enough fellow. I threw back at him. Are you sure you're English? He laughed and picked up a pitchfork. Together we dug as far back into the hay piles as we could, and I made a little nest for the pilot while he cut a piece of his shirt away to bandage up his arm. There was a lot of blood. Too much. I worried he might bleed to death before we could come back and get him. Stay here. My parents will pick you up tonight. And just who are your parents? What are you doing here in Berlin? My dad is the Irish ambassador to Germany, I told him. They've helped other Allied pilots get out of Germany. They'll help you too. But I don't even know you were shot down. I had to act fast. I'm glad you did, he said, and he shook my hand. This barn was quickly turning into the place where I made new friends. I didn't know a long German word for that, so I made one up. Der Freundschaft surweisen Schoenja. The befriending barn. I picked up a pitchfork full of hay and got ready to bury him. Wait, I need you to do one more thing, he said. I took a camera with me from the plane. A big camera. I was taking reconnaissance photos. Very important reconnaissance photos. I need you to find the camera. Get the film. It's vital that the film make it out of Germany, even if I don't. I hid it in one of the haystacks in the field where I came down. Which haystack? I asked. The British pilot smiled apologetically. Um, the brown one? Exposed. I searched the haystacks for half an hour before the search party came back over the hill. I was as empty-handed as they were. It was late in the day, time to head back to Berlin. Reinforcements from the city had arrived. The search for the airmen would continue without us, and my search for the camera would have to wait until I came back with my parents tonight. Where were you? Fritz asked me when we met back up at the truck. I didn't see you on the search in the hills. I thought maybe he doubled back a second time to really throw us off the scent. I lied. So I searched the haystacks across the road. Fritz laughed. You're quite the gumshoe. I was surprised he used the word gumshoe. It was one of those English words there's no German translation for. If you want to use it, you have to say it in English. And using English words, or words from any other language besides German, was the kind of thing that drew the attention of the SRD and the Gestapo. And how did Fritz know it, anyway? The only place I'd heard it was in American movies, and they didn't show those here anymore. I didn't have time to ask him about it. The SRD lined us up, and the SS agents spoke to us again. They frowned at us, angry, as if it was our fault the British pilot had gotten away. In my case, at least, they were right. A disappointing day, one of the SS said. The British spy will be captured. Every man, woman, and child in this country is his enemy. He will find no help from anyone. Well, not every man, woman, and child, I thought. Inwardly, I smiled. In the meantime, we have at least found what he came to do. A cold grin split the SS man's face as he held aloft a large black camera. I sagged. They must have found it when they were searching the field, long before I ever went looking for it. The SS officer flipped open the back of the camera and yanked out the long plastic film strip inside, exposing it to the light and ruining it forever. A small problem. It was dark when my parents and I came back that night. The moon was down and the stars were out. Da drove the last mile or so without the headlights on. I don't like this, he said. But I don't much like it either, Ma said. But we can't just leave the lad there to be captured by the Nazis. No, Da said. I mean, I don't like Michael hiding English airmen in barns in broad daylight. He should never have done it. And what was I supposed to do? I said, leaning over the back of the front seat. Just let him get caught. 
Yes, Da said. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I couldn't find the words. I looked to my ma in the seat beside him. She had to agree with me. She was the real spy in the family. He's right, Michael, Ma said. Sneaking into studies is one thing. Hiding Royal Air Force pilots is another entirely. But, but... But nothing, Da said. What if you'd been caught? Ma turned to look at me. Michael, it's terrible to say so, but sometimes you have to weigh the cost of one man's life against the value of an entire operation. Suddenly, I was back in the street again during Kristallnacht, hurrying past a man being beaten to death by the Gestapo, doing nothing. My face burned hot, and my heart beat faster. It's taken me years to set up my informant network in Berlin, Ma went on. If you'd been caught, your father would have been expelled, and we would have lost everything. That's what this is about, I said. No. That is not what this is about, Da said, scowling at Ma. It's about Michael getting shot, or worse. Only in Nazi Germany was there something worse than being shot. The concentration camps. Michael, you've a terrific mind for details, and the information you've helped send back has been dead useful, Da said as he drove on. But you're 13 years old. You've no business putting your life on the line for anything. I thought Ma might say something in my defense. After all, she was the one who'd trained with Irish intelligence since she was 16 years old. She was the one who had taught me how to come up with an excuse to leave a party, how to slip away unnoticed, how to lie. It was an argument she and Da had all the time. But if she thought different this time, she bit her tongue. I folded my arms across my chest and stared out the window. No business putting my life on the line for anything. That was exactly what was wrong with Nazi Germany. Some of the Germans must have disagreed with Hitler and the Nazis, but they were afraid that if they said something, did something, they might get shot, or worse. So instead of anybody doing anything to help anybody else... They kept their eyes on their feet and pretended the sky wasn't falling down on their heads. How could none of them do anything? How could I not? Da had only allowed me to come along tonight because I knew where the pilot was hidden. He parked the car far down the lane from the farm, and we snuck quietly up to the barn. The farmhands ought to be sound asleep, and any search for the airmen called off till morning. But we still had to be careful. The barn door creaked so loud I thought for sure they could hear it all the way back in Berlin. But no lights came on in the farmhouse. There was another surprise, too. The barn was full of sleeping cows. Don, Ma, and I tiptoed between them, careful not to wake them and set them to mooing, which for sure would wake the farmhands. At last, we came to the pile of hay where I'd buried the pilot, hopefully not for good. We dug in the hay with our hands instead of the pitchfork so as not to spear the airman. But the deeper and deeper we dug, we still couldn't find him. Ma shot me a silent question with her eyes. Are you sure this is where you left him? I nodded an emphatic yes. This was where I left him. But what if the SS had searched the outbuildings again, not trusting us to do the job? What if they had already captured the British pilot? Was he sitting in some cell in Berlin somewhere right this minute? SS agents interrogating him? Torturing him? A hand popped up out of the hay beside me, making me jump. He was still there, and he was still alive. My father took the airman's hand and pulled him out while my mother and I brushed the hay from him. He looked worse than before, but Ma would get him fixed up as soon as we got him back to the embassy. Did you find my camera? He whispered to me. I shook my head. SS found it first. He sighed and nodded. We can at least get you out of here, Ma said. You'll have to stay with us a while in Berlin first, until you heal up. What's your name, son? Da asked. Lieutenant Simon Cohen, sir, he said, giving us a British salute. My mother and father froze. You're a Jew? 
Da asked. Afraid so, Simon said, flashing that apologetic smile again. Is that going to be a problem? Our submarine. Taking a Jew into Berlin, the heart of Nazi Germany, where Jews were public enemy number one, was indeed a problem. A big one. Berlin wasn't really Jew-free the way the Nazis claimed. It couldn't be. Anybody with half a brain knew there had to be Jews still in the city, hidden away in secret rooms by sympathetic Germans. The German people even had a nickname for the hidden Jews. They called them U-boats, like the German submarines. I guess because, like U-boats, the Jews were lurking there beneath the surface. The SS were thugs, but they weren't stupid. They knew there were still Jews in Berlin. They just hadn't found them yet. But they were searching for them, hard. And if the SS discovered you were hiding Jews in your home, you were sunk. Your whole family would be sent off to the concentration camps with them. Taking Simon back to Berlin with us and hiding him in our embassy was super dangerous to all of us. Not to mention, it might lead to a major international incident if the Irish ambassador was discovered hiding a Jewish-British spy. We slipped into our home at the embassy around 3 o'clock in the morning, while all the staff were asleep. Our staff were all German, and though we knew them all by name and they had worked for the embassy for years... Da and Ma still assumed that one or more of them were reporting on us to the Gestapo. Right when we moved here, my parents told me to watch what I said and did around the staff. But that was good advice anywhere in Berlin. Da and Ma carried Simon to the secret little room in the back of Da's study. It was a tiny space, no bigger than a closet, where we hid all the books the Nazis wanted us to burn. Like the missing family in that empty gray house, whoever they were, we had a stash of forbidden books, too. I waited there with Simon while Da went for the medicine bag, and Ma went to the kitchen for food. Well, at least I'll have something to do while I'm holed up, Simon said, looking around at all our forbidden books. Murder on the Orient Express. The Dragon Murder Case. The Maltese Falcon he said, reading some of the titles. You've got quite a collection of mystery novels. Which one's your favorite? Simon asked me. I shrugged. I haven't read any of them. Simon stared at me flabbergasted. You've never read any of them? You're in a country that is burning piles of books. Books just like these. You're risking your life to stop the Nazis from doing it. You're fighting to give people everywhere the right to do what they want, to read what they want, to think for themselves. This, all this, he said, gesturing at the books on the shelves. This is what you're fighting for, and you haven't even bothered to read them? The Nazis may as well throw them on the fire if you're not going to read them. I burned red with shame, and I put my hands in surrender. Okay, okay. I said, sorry. This isn't a game, kiddo, Simon said. It's a war, and it's not enough to say the Nazis are the bad guys. It's not who you're fighting against that matters. It's what you're fighting for. Simon pulled a book off the shelf. The Golden Spiders by Rex Stout. He put it in my hands. We'll start with this one, he said. Read a few chapters and then come back every day and we'll talk about it. I gaped at him. I already go to school. Where you're taught not one single thing of educational value, Da said, coming back with the medicine bag. I think it's a brilliant idea. Just make sure you don't let the staff see you reading it, Ma said. She'd come back with a sandwich and a glass of milk for Simon. I groaned and flipped through the pages. It looked boring. Ma went to work cleaning and bandaging Simon's arm, while Da retraced our steps, making sure there were no drops of blood for the staff to find the next day. Simon hissed with pain as my mother dabbed at his arm with alcohol. Did you hear the one about the Englishman, the Scotsman, and the Irishman who were being chased by the Gestapo? He asked me in a strained voice. 
There he went, joking again. I figured he was trying to focus on something else besides the pain, so I played along while Ma continued to work. I can't say that I have, I told him. They hide out in this old warehouse where there are three empty sacks on the floor, and each of them jumps into a sack. The Gestapo officer comes in and sees three full sacks on the floor. He kicks the first one, and the Englishman shouts, Woof! Woof! The Gestapo man thinks it's just an old dog in the sack, so he kicks the second bag. The Scotsman cries, Meow! Meow! And the officer leaves it alone, thinking it must be a cat. He kicks the third sack, and the Irishman yells, Potatoes! Potatoes! Potato jokes? Really? I said. Lieutenant Cohen gave me his big, straight-toothed smile. Ma had finished with his arm and was tending to his ankle when Da came back. I'll start working on a plan right away to get you out of Germany, Ma told Simon. Not you? he asked Da. I'm the legit side of the business, he told Simon. She's the clandestine part. Once my parents told me what they were up to that night of broken glass, I'd begun to see the strange things my mother did in a new light. Like the time when I was seven, just after we'd moved to Berlin, when Ma had taken me for a walk all around the city, shooting my picture in front of the Tempelhof Airport, the German Ministry of Aviation, and the Reich Chancellery, the building from which Adolf Hitler ruled. She hadn't been taking pictures of me, not really. She'd been taking pictures of strategic targets. Even then, I'd been part of the family business. I just hadn't known it yet. Women and children make terrific spice, Ma told me later, because people always underestimate us. It will take some time to arrange for the transportation, Ma told Simon now, but you're not going anywhere until this ankle heals anyhow. You've lost a lot of blood, too. A few days' rest and recuperation wouldn't go amiss, I'm thinking. What in the name of all that's holy were you doing flying solo over Berlin in broad daylight? Da asked. American bombers attacked during the day, but there were dozens, hundreds of them at a time. Not solo planes that were easy to shoot at. Taking pictures, Simon said. He sucked in air and the color drained from his face as Ma tested his ankle. Photos ruined, though. All for nothing. Nazis are developing some new kind of airplane. It works without propellers. Super fast. Caught it on the runway during testing. They call it Project 1065. Wake up call. Morning dawn, bright and early. Too bright and too early when you'd been up half the night rescuing a downed British airman from the countryside and hiding him in your house. I came out of my room and looked down the hall at where my father's study was, thinking about Simon hidden away in that little room. The plan was that Da would lock the door to his study and check in on Simon every few hours, giving him a chance to go to the bathroom, have a little something to eat. But anything more and the staff would know something fishy was happening and one of them would get word back to the Gestapo. I watched as the staff came and went, doing their morning chores. Which of them were sympathetic to the Allies? Which of them were loyal to Hitler? Had found the freedom, the joy that comes with giving yourself completely to the Fuhrer, as Horst called it. Which of them would spy on us for the Gestapo to save their families from the concentration camps? There was no way to know. The only thing we could do was to keep our U-boat submerged as much as possible, only letting him up every now and then for air. I dragged myself to school half asleep and fading fast. I planned to close my eyes and sleep through Herr Professor Dr. Major Melcher's lecture on Nazi history. I'd memorized it all already anyway and could answer anything he asked if he called on me. I had my head down on my desk at the back of the room before class started, drool trickling from my gaping mouth when I felt someone poking me in the shoulder. Hey, hey, Michael, pick up. It was Fritz, and he wouldn't stop poking me. 
Yesterday, I had fought to save his life. This morning, all I wanted to do was kill him. Leave me alone, I mumbled from behind my arms. Michael, wake up. I want to show you something. I dragged my head up. Whatever this was had better be good. I was going to show this to everybody, Fritz whispered. But I'm just going to show it to you instead. Fritz did the German look over his shoulder to make sure no one else was listening. And I woke up a little. Whatever Fritz wanted to tell me, he didn't want anybody else to hear it, which meant it was something worth hearing. Fritz pulled a big blue piece of paper from his rucksack and pressed it into my hands. He smiled at me, eyes wide, like I should be amazed at what I was seeing. To tell the truth, I didn't understand what I was looking at. Not at first. But when I did, I woke up for good. Fast. It was a secret so big, it could change the course of the war. Maybe change the fate of the world. And I had it right there in my hands. Project 1065 The big blue piece of paper was a blueprint. A technical drawing of a new kind of airplane that hadn't been built yet. An airplane without propellers. The same airplane Simon had been trying to catch on camera when he was shot down. Project 1065. It said the name of the project right there in the corner. I caught myself doing the German look to make sure no one else was watching us. Fritz was practically hopping. It doesn't have any propellers. See? It has two jet engines, he said. It's a new kind of plane. A jet plane. It will go twice as fast as any other airplane in the world. Goosebumps crawled up my arms. Where did you get this? I said. I quickly scanned as much of the paper as I could. There were lines and numbers and detailed instructions written all over it. My father's on the design team, Fritz said proudly. He'd kill me if he knew I took it from his study. I was going to show the whole troop, but then they beat me up, so I decided I would just show it to you. I shook my head. I guess sometimes people did hand you their secrets but only if you saved them from getting beat to a pulp. Isn't it amazing? Fritz was saying. With this plane, Germany will smash the Allies. That's exactly what I was worried about. The only reason Hitler hadn't been able to invade England was because of its amazing Royal Air Force, the RAF. They'd beaten the Nazis in the skies over London in the Battle of Britain fighting against regular old propeller-driven planes with propeller-driven planes of their own. But if this jet engine really was twice as fast as any regular airplane, they could fly circles around the RAF. The German Luftwaffe would defeat the RAF, Hitler would invade England, and the Allies would crumble. The Nazis would rule the world. This says page one of twelve. I said, my voice no more than a whisper. I tried to hide my desperation. Where are the rest of the plants? Before Fritz could answer, the air was split with a siren so familiar none of us even jumped. Air raid. A job to do. As a member of the junior Hitler youth ranks, I had a job during air raids. The same job every other young folk had. Each of us had a section of a Berlin street that was ours, and our job was to run there as soon as the sirens rang and make sure that everyone who lived on that street got to the air raid shelter before the Allied bombs started to fall. At the sound of the siren, we were all out of our seats and running for the door. Class hadn't even started yet. The Allies were up early today, too. Fritz snatched the blueprint from me and stuffed it back into his rucksack. I caught myself reaching out for it and had to pull my hand back, watching the paper disappear with a gnawing ache like hunger. I had to get my hands on the rest of those blueprints. The Allies had to have a jet fighter of their own to survive. 
Talk to you later, Fritz said as he ran off to do his job. You bet you will, I said under my breath. I was going to stick to him now like medals on a Nazi general's uniform. I ran to my street. Mostly young married women lived there, some of them with babies, others with children in school off doing their own jobs during the air raid. Hardly any men. Most any man old enough to fight was away in the army or dead. The air raid sirens wailed as I hurried the women and little kids to the shelter underground. I was supposed to shut myself in with them when I was sure we were all present and accounted for, but today I had another person I needed to check in on, and now was the perfect time to do it. The first bombs started to fall across the city as I ran back to the embassy. I could hear the dull boom, boom, boom in the distance, and then the ack, ack guns. The anti-aircraft guns began firing back. Tuff, 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 tuff. They were far enough away that I wasn't worried. Besides, I had a deal with the Allied bombers. I didn't shoot at them, and they didn't shoot at me. That was a joke, of course. They had no idea who or what their bombs were hitting when they dropped them from the planes by the ton, but I liked to think it was true. I ran through empty streets full of empty houses. Anyone could have walked right in and stolen all the silverware, food, radios, anything of value. And sometimes that was just what people did during air raids. People who were poor or starving or just looking out for themselves. That was part of the job of the Gestapo and the SRD, to patrol the empty neighborhoods during air raids and make sure nothing was stolen. They took the job very seriously, too. The penalty for stealing from houses while everyone was underground in bomb shelters was death. There weren't any Gestapo or SRD on the street near the embassy when I got there, and I ran up the steps and plowed inside. It was strange to not be met by a servant, to be entirely alone in the house. It was creepy, actually. It felt like everyone in the world was dead and gone except for me. But of course, I wasn't the only person there. I ran for my father's study and knocked on the door, calling out for Simon. I hoped he was already out of the secret room, walking in circles on his injured foot. Air raids were the only time he could really get out and walk around without anybody seeing him. Simon unlocked the door and let me in. Good Lord, Michael, you scared the life out of me. What are you doing here? The Nazi jet plane, I stammered, trying to catch my breath. Project 1065. I saw the... I saw the blueprints. Saving the world's bacon. Project 1065? The blueprints? Simon said. How the devil did you... I grabbed a pencil and paper from my father's desk and sketched out everything I could remember. I drew the shape of the plane and a few of the numbers and words I'd seen before the air raid siren had sounded and Fritz had ripped the page from my hands. Simon stared at the paper with an open mouth. But this is extraordinary. You saw this today. When? Where? And how do you remember so much of it? I told Simon everything. About Fritz, his father, page one of twelve, my photographic memory. I don't believe it, Simon said. Do you know what this means? I can finish my mission after all, and even better than before. I can bring home actual blueprints, not just photographs taken from 20,000 feet. He took me giddily by the shoulders. You may just save my bacon and all of England, America, and Russia's bacon, too. If you can get another look at those plans, can you? And memorize more of them? Sure, I said. All I have to do is stay close to Fritz, and I'm sure he'll show them to me again. It'll be easy. We're in the same Jungfolk squad, and... And then it hit me. We wouldn't be for much longer. Oh. Oh, no. What? What is it? I'm not going to be in the Jungfolk anymore. They're calling up all the 17-year-old boys from the Hitler Youth to fight in the German army. 
which means they're promoting all the 13-year-olds like me out of the young folk a year early. Good Lord, Simon said. 17-year-olds fighting in the army. The Jerrys must be getting pretty desperate. Boys too young to shave, drafted to fight on the front lines. He frowned at me. But I still don't understand what any of that has to do with buddying up to this boy whose father has the plans. The initiation tests into the senior Hitler youth is in less than a week, I explained. If I don't pass the test, Fritz will join the SRD, and I'll never see him again until he busts me for sneaking into a movie teacher. I'll never be able to get close to him. And who says you're not going to pass the Hitler Youth Initiation? Simon asked. The last test is jumping off a two-story building into a pool, I said. And I'm afraid of heights. Not just afraid. I mean, pee your pants, freeze up, fall flat on your face afraid of heights. Just thinking about the two-story jump made me queasy. I've tried to get better at it, but... But? But I can't do it, I said meekly. Right, Simon said, clapping his hands. So we have less than a week to get you over your fear of heights then, eh? It wasn't that simple. You don't understand, I started to tell him. Believe it or not, I do, Simon said. Look, I've some experience with this. I can help you overcome your fear. Enough at least to pass your test. But to do it, we're going to have to get started right away, all right? Let's head up to the roof. I quailed. The roof? I couldn't. D during an air raid? I asked. I was more afraid of the rooftop than the bombs falling all around us. Far more afraid of the rooftop. But I hoped reminding Simon of the air raid would stop this crazy plan. Why not? Simon said. How else is no one going to see us? Now, let's hop to it. The German Blitz Berlin was on fire. That's what it looked like from the roof. Orange-red glows silhouetted the broken shapes of buildings, each inferno sprouting a thick, acrid mushroom cloud of smoke. The air smelled like burning metal and spent firecrackers, tasted like fireplace ash and cement dust. The Americans knew the way to Berlin now as if they were flying from New York to Philadelphia and back, and they dropped their bombs on the city all at once, like children opening their fists to let handfuls of pebbles drop to the ground. Hundreds of thousands of bombs fell on Berlin, illuminated by the giant German searchlights that swept the dull gray skies for bombers. The thundering, teeth-clattering explosions of the bombs was accompanied by the staccato boom, 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 boom of the Nazis' anti-aircraft guns. Yellow streaks shot into the sky, exploding among the planes with pops like fireworks. One of the AA guns in the streets detonated like a cherry bomb, and I flinched. The searchlights made the guns perfect targets for the bombers they were trying to shoot down. I had never been outside during an air raid before. This is what's going to happen to that factory, I said. What factory? Simon asked. The one I stole a secret location for, I said. I told Simon about finding the numbers in the playing card in the automaker's study. Da sent the message off in the diplomatic pouch this morning. In a few weeks, a few days maybe, British planes will fly over it and do this... I was always so excited to help, but... But it won't be soldiers in those factories, will it? No, Simon said. It'll be prisoners, most likely. I shrank. I had been worried enough when I thought it would be German civilians. But prisoners? Innocent people? Now they were all going to die because of me. If we didn't bomb those factories, if we didn't drop these bombs here today... The Nazis would win, and then there would be even more prisoners. Even more innocent people would die, Simon said. Sometimes good people have to be sacrificed to win a war. I nodded. My mother had told me the same thing in her way about leaving Simon behind. 
But we hadn't sacrificed Simon, and it was good that we hadn't. How did you decide who to sacrifice and who to save? Bad as this is, Simon continued, the Nazis did ten times worse to us during the Blitz. He spoke quietly, even though it was hard to hear over the explosions. German planes overhead almost every night, dropping hundreds of thousands of firebombs on London. People huddled in tube tunnels, lying down along the subway tracks, little kids crying, babies wailing, and up top, the whole blooming city reduced to rubble. More than eight months of it, 57 nights in a row one time. He paused, watching buildings explode. Payback. That's what this is. I knew about the Blitz. Short for Blitzkrieg. Lightning War. Poland, Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, Norway, France. They had all fallen in a matter of months, sometimes weeks, sometimes even hours. But Hitler hadn't been able to conquer England. The Battle of Britain, fought entirely in the skies, was supposed to have crippled England and demoralized her people, made it ripe for an amphibious assault across the English Channel. When it didn't, Hitler gave up on England and turned east toward Russia. England got knocked down and got back up again, but it might not be able to do that a second time if the Nazis developed jet planes. Which was why I was up here in the first place, I remembered. To get over my fear of... My stomach seized up as I suddenly remembered where I was. My head bobbed like a barrage balloon. My legs went wobbly and the rest of me froze. I fell... Face first toward the floor of the roof.